This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 2nd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, Megan Cantwell talks with Vivian Labrie about the surprising link between the appendix and Parkinson's disease. Why is getting rid of a tiny bit of the gut linked with a lower risk of a neurological disease? And I talked to Peter Fratzel about his review on sustainable composites or what material scientists can learn from butterfly wings, chitin carapaces, and spring-loaded seed pods. I'm with Vivian Labrie to discuss her research on the relationship between the appendix and the development of Parkinson's disease. Hey, Vivian. Hi, Megan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you on the podcast. So I'm curious what led you down this path. Have other researchers investigated the relationship between the appendix and Parkinson's disease before? Parkinson's disease for a long time was thought to be this movement disorder driven by the destruction of dopamine neurons in a specific area of the brain. Uh, It's called the substantia niagara. But in the last 10 years, it's become really evident that Parkinson's disease is not just a movement disorder, but has a whole range of non-motor symptoms. And one of the most common non-motor symptoms is issues with the GI tract, for example, constipation. And these GI symptoms occur often very early for Parkinson's disease. For some people, it's as early as two decades before the onset of motor symptoms. We got really interested in this connection of the GI tract, but the GI tract was such a huge place that, you know, where do you even begin? So we had a very simple question, actually, of where should we start to look? And so that's when we turned our attention to the appendix. What exactly in the GI tract is linked to Parkinson's disease? So the GI tract is not only involved in the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, but has also been proposed to be a place in the body where Parkinson's disease might begin. And that's because there's this hallmark pathology of Parkinson's disease. It's called Lewy bodies. And that's formed of a a, a clump protein called aphocynuclein. When it starts to get cut in a certain ways, it can increase its clumping ability. In the appendix, there was these cut versions or these shortened versions of this protein, and they looked very much like the stuff you find in Lewy bodies in the Parkinson's disease brain. And there's evidence that even many years before the onset of motor symptoms, you can detect this clumped alpha-synuclein protein in the GI tract of individuals who are going to go develop Parkinson's disease. So is this protein only found in the appendix of those who have Parkinson's or are they also found in healthy individuals as well? 
we found that actually there was a whole host of this pump protein in the human appendix. And this isn't just in Parkinson's patients, but this is also in healthy individuals. So in healthy individuals, it's very normal to have this pump protein, but it's actually very unhealthy and could lead to Parkinson's disease if the pump protein were to go to the brain. In people with Parkinson's, does that mean that you see more of this protein, this clumped protein within their appendix, or is it just the spreading that you're looking into? We did find that there was definitely more clumped protein in Parkinson's patients. So there was an excess of this protein in the appendices of Parkinson's patients. Okay, gotcha. So how does this protein alpha-synuclein start in the GI tract, then make its way up to the brain? This protein doesn't like to stay put. It's able to jump from neuron to neuron. There's evidence showing that it can actually travel up the nerve that connects the GI tract to the brain. And once the clumped alpha-synuclein has entered the brain, this could be really disastrous because it can seed and it can spread and cause the neurotoxic effects related to Parkinson's disease. And so what distinguishes a Parkinson's person from a healthy individual is not the presence of this hallmark pathology, this clumped protein, but rather what are the mechanisms that allow it to accumulate excessively and possibly escape. Is there a way to prevent this from going to the brain? That would be kind of for future studies. At this point, we're just sort of documenting that this protein is present in the appendix. And it also can be found in other parts of the GI tract. But the appendix seems to be a hub where there's a lot of it all sort of concentrated. Your study centered on determining whether removing the appendix actually led to later onset of Parkinson's or just overall the risk of developing Parkinson's. So how did you begin to evaluate this? For this, we tapped into these really large medical databases. So one database is the Swedish registry. In the country of Sweden, there's information about all individuals, all their medical records. And with our collaborators, what we did is we looked to see if the risk of Parkinson's disease was changed in individuals that had received an appendectomy relative to individuals that didn't. And sure enough, there was actually almost a 20% decrease in risk for Parkinson's disease in people that had had a previous appendectomy. And an important aspect of that is that the appendectomy has to occur early in life. So an appendectomy the day before you develop Parkinson's disease is not so helpful. It only is beneficial when the appendectomy has occurred at least before that kind of early phase of Parkinson's disease, two decades or more before the onset of clinical motor symptoms. An event that happened a long, long time ago can modulate something that happens many decades down the road. One interesting thing you discovered was that in rural communities, removing the appendix made a greater difference in the onset age and the overall risk of developing Parkinson's than in urban areas. So why do you think this is the case? We think that that's because there's been a very kind of robust association of Parkinson's disease with the use of pesticides. So one possibility is that in rural areas, these are normally farming areas where there is a substantial use of, of chemicals and pesticides. It's just a normal farming process. But those chemicals are known also to sometimes have a a risk related to Parkinson's disease. The appendix in Parkinson's disease may be related to what you're exposed to in your environment. Did removing the appendix also have an effect on people who have a genetic history of Parkinson's disease? We compared individuals that had genetic risk for Parkinson's disease. So this is common genetic mutations that have been previously associated with familial Parkinson's disease. Now, remember, familial Parkinson's disease is relatively rare, so only 10% of cases will have one of these genetic mutations. The rest of individuals will be known as sporadic or idiopathic Parkinson's disease, so that's 90%. 
the appendectomy did not have a beneficial effect if you were a genetic carrier of one of these genetic mutations. But if you had a family history of Parkinson's disease, so families share genes, but they also share environment. If you had a family history of Parkinson's disease, then an appendectomy was protective. So again, this suggested that the environment somehow plays a role in the mechanism by which the appendix modulates the risk for Parkinson's disease. So then would you recommend that people who have this greater environmental risk get preventative appendectomies? So I guess what our study is is not saying is that all cases of Parkinson's disease is due to having an appendix and that all people should remove their appendix or even people who live in rural areas should remove their appendix. That's not what we're saying. What a better form of treatment is, is to start exploring some of these compounds that might reduce or block the excessive accumulation or the spread of this protein. Now, remember, the appendix is a hub that has a lot of it, but there's other GI tract areas that have the potential to have this protein as well. And so using a therapy that could dampen down this protein in the GI tract would be a much more holistic or would cover a lot more ground. And the GI tract being such a big place, we haven't fully investigated all the other areas. There could be other areas in the GI tract that could be hubs as well. So what is the next step with your research? Well, we really want to get to understanding these differences between Parkinson's patients and a healthy person on a mechanistic level. What allows the protein to be triggered into an excessive accumulation in Parkinson's disease in the appendix and what allows it to escape and travel up to the brain? And I think if we can find out what those mechanisms are, we're at a really good stepping stone for developing treatments and early diagnostics. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Vivian Labrie is an assistant professor at the Van Andel Research Institute. You can find a link to her research at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Stay tuned for my interview with Peter Fratzel on what evolution can teach designers, engineers, and material scientists about making multifunctional materials. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, science has finally solved the sock problem. Bombas are now the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without feeling like you're walking on little mattresses in your shoes, Bombas feels like a hug around your foot. Not to mention, Bombas stay-up technology ensures that your socks don't quit on you, and they also don't leave a mark on your leg. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take these guys off your feet. So whether you're a runner, power walker, or power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort to your life. Go to bombas.com slash science mag and use the code science mag for 20% off your first order. That's bombas.com slash science mag, code science mag, and you'll get 20% off your first order. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by the NSA. Almost every day we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's a bunch of pranksters, but more often it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack the power grid, the banking system, or the military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting the country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep the country safe. 
design new software systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what its adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov NSA. Nature is so much better than us humans at making things. Not only are the materials made by living organisms packed with features, things like transparency and self-cleaning or tough, shiny, and flexible carcasses, but the building blocks that make up all of this stuff are very limited. Think proteins, sugars, a few minerals. Peter Fratzel is here to talk about lessons that material scientists can learn from the natural world. Hi, Peter. Hi. Yeah, it is true that nature is basing its fantastic materials on a fairly small selection of base materials. I would not necessarily say that nature is better. Nature <laughs> is actually making better use of what it has. Humans have improved on nature in some ways is to actually develop complete new sets of materials based, for example, on metal, ceramics and so on all this variation from these simple starting materials? What are the principles there? The central idea is that many different properties, be it color or mechanical properties, depend not only on the chemical composition, but on the internal structure of the material. Right. And that gets to this idea, actually, it's a special issue this week on composite. So Mixing two things, you're not making a new molecule, you're mixing two distinct things, and the proportions and how they're structured tends to dictate the properties rather than what chemicals you're adding in. Let's talk about some of these different natural products. There's this one you mentioned, an Australian seed pod. Can you describe that in material science terms? Like, what, is, what are the properties that the seed pod has? Yeah, what's exciting about the seed pod from a material science viewpoint is that it's actually made by a natural organism, but it is a totally non-living material. Mm-hmm. In other words, the cells that have been synthesizing this are not any more active. And this material is waiting like a little robotic device for huh. certain things to happen in the environment. And it hangs out for 15 years sometimes. It can hang out for 15 years. And that in itself is a challenge because, of course, there is a seed on the very bottom of that little apparatus. And this seed should not be eaten by fungi or bacteria and so on. So it has to be sealed for quite a while. And what makes this little robot actuate? It waits for a first signal, which is a temperature signal, typically generated by bushfire. So this is a plant living in fire ecology, waiting for all the competitors to be burned down and turned (laughs) into fertile soil. And this is the moment to shed the seeds. But obviously, you don't want to shed the seeds into the hot ashes. You want to shed it when it's humid. So it starts the clock. Yeah. The fire starts the clock on it's almost time to release the seeds. Yeah. So the fire induces a first crack in the seed pot. And then this first crack then allows water to come in at the next rain, which will then, by swelling of certain parts of this composite material, actually bend it and open it and then allow the shedding of the seeds. And then it can vary that difference, like how long it waits after the rains. 
or it can wait for a certain number of rains? It's interesting that without changing the chemical composition and also with the same genetic background, the plant is able to adapt the geometry of these little pods. I think you can easily imagine if you want to bend a shell open, if the shell is extremely curved, this is going to be hard. If the shell is a little flatter, this is going to be easier. And if the average temperature is high, because we are on a hotter part of the country, the seed pods have adapted so as to open us at a slightly higher temperature. <laughs> That's very cool. So what could all of the intricate parts of the seed pod be adapted to do? You know, what kind of applications could you see coming out of studying this? It's interesting to sort of believe that a plant is able to grow a robotic device. <laughs> I mean, we would, we would all think that you need a brain to do this. The advantage of looking at uh, non-living structures for inspiration from an engineering viewpoint is that it is extremely difficult to mimic or even use a material that requires living cells, yeah. right? This doesn't. It's actually made of polymers, and that's it. Different types of polymers, mostly polysaccharides, sugars. I think it can inspire robotic devices, for example, in remote locations, waiting for an environmental signal. It does not require direct energy source. Mm -hmm because it uses the energy it requires just from the environment. The rain that's coming provides the energy to open uh, this uh, seed pot because it swells the sugar. And while after it's created, it kind of winds itself like a spring by drying, tensing on the inside, or, or there's differences in tension between the layers? This is especially important for the first opening that is triggered by fire, because the fire signal, of course, should induce a first crack without too much damage to what's inside. What uh, seems to happen is that when the seed dries after the cells have died, some parts dry more than others or shrink more than others, I should say. And in this way, store, like in a spring, elastic energy. Mm -hmm. And then the fire softens one of the components, and this is how the energy is released like in a trap uh, with the cheese. where <laughs> Like a mouse trap. Catch the mouse, yeah. <laughs> so great. <laughs> in, in some ways, yeah. yeah. And then, okay, we're going to talk about seeds forever because there's this other layer that we should also mention, which is like a waxy layer that over time it melts down in ambient summer temperatures so that any kind of damage that might occur inside the seed, it, it's sealed up, which is just, yeah. Just imagine candle wax. If you heat it up, yeah. you can glue the candle to some place, for example, to a chandelier. That's uh, what I'm doing once in a while. <laughs> and, and this gluing means that you have uh, connected, uh, reconnected the wax with something. And so it glues itself back to uh, hold fungi off and other predators that would like to eat the seed. Let's switch to a completely different organism here. Another example in your paper is squid teeth, which to be honest, I did not know that squid had little individual teeth and they're pretty wicked looking. We have a big picture of them in the special section. Can you talk about what makes them so amazing? I should say that these teeth are very special because they are they are sitting on the sucker rings. Oh, so, that's where they are. Yeah, that's particularly nasty. Just imagine the sucker ring that then has teeth to hold on really 
form. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't want to be grabbed by this. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really interesting about these teeth is that they can have very different properties. They can be sharp and hard, but they're made just of protein. Mm -hmm. And this protein turns out just by uh, humidifying and drying can be put into, into a state where it's soft and in a state where it's very hard so that you can make it printable. You can 3D print this material. It's kind of uh, incredible property material. Well, it's really a thermoplastic, so you can just heat it up or humidify it, and then you can put it into any shape. If you dry it, it gets hard in that shape. And uh, if you want another shape, you just uh, have to pass again through this uh, softening step and uh, uh, reform it in a different way. It's made of a, a component that's repeated, which is called, amazingly, saccharin. Um, <laughs> well, somebody had a good idea. There. Yeah. And the animal uses it to make gradients into the material so as to be able to transmit stresses from the teeth to the soft body and so on. This is a really fantastic example where one single material can be tuned to all kinds of applications. One of the big points that I took away from this review was that the way these materials evolve is something we should also think about when designing materials for specific purposes. So how these things came about is an important thing to think about when trying to work on a bio-inspired project. The important thing to realize is that evolution is similar to history. There is a memory of the past. Mm. Obviously, if you have a memory of the past, you do not reinvent everything. I mean, just imagine a, a tree trunk. If you want to have the tree as high as possible, maybe if uh, nature had steel at its disposal, it would use something else than wood. But the fact that it had these molecules to deal with, because they can be synthesized in the living organism, these molecules were tuned so as to get the properties that are required. And I think this is a very exciting uh, way to think about engineering in a slightly different way. Because if you want to reuse what you're producing, then of course, if you're mixing everything you have at your disposal, separating it and reusing use is extremely difficult. Nature is a master of reusing things so as to recycle their primary materials. It can be reabsorbed, degraded, taken up again, eaten by another organism, and then turned into a, a wholly new purpose. It is being recycled either by the same organism or by another organism. I'm not saying that this can be translated one-to-one -one into a human materials economy, but at least it's a, line, it's a line of thought that we should have, at least when we have a basic science look at materials. Mm -hmm. I do want to touch on the third example, which is a very interesting look at materials that interact with light. They manipulate light, but they also have other properties like extreme toughness or their self-cleaning. And you kind of show how using very similar starting materials, you can tune up and tune down these different properties. So let's start under the sea with the chitin. What, what's amazing about the chitin is that it has a hard, tough shell, and then interspersed around the shell are these areas that are basically transparent to light, made of the same material as a shell, but not, but structured differently so that light can be transmitted, and, and then there's sensors on the inside. And so it, it takes the same material and, and does something completely different with it. Exactly. The chitin and also other organisms use 
lenses that are actually made of a material that normally you would think is a protective material. But the nice thing about light manipulation is that light manipulation is possible with nanostructures, we should say submicron structures to be precise, that have uh, approximately the wavelengths of light. Just not modifying anything else than this structure at, at the submicron scale, in addition to whatever is required for the organism, light manipulation is possible, like focusing of light for a lens or color and, and all these other properties. Well, let's take a look at butterfly wings and cicada wings. Can you talk about what they do that's special? So they're made of chitin, which is just another polysaccharide. So we have been talking a lot about cellulose-based system earlier. Cellulose is the most abundant polymer on earth, and the second most abundant is chitin. And this is what the butterfly wings are made of. And of course, a wing has a primary property to allow flapping and flying. But by structuring the surface in a submicron scale, you can manipulate light and create a reflector that reflects certain wavelengths and not others. And therefore, for example, give this fantastic deep blue that is well known for the morpho butterfly. Also, we know from other works that nanostructured surfaces can be super hydrophobic, water repellent. And of course, you can then at the same time manipulate light, for example, have a low reflection, therefore be, I would not say invisible, but less visible. Yeah. And at the same time, have a self-cleaning surface. So structure has this very nice property that it can manipulate the physical properties of the material in different ways. And we shouldn't forget the anti-biofouling properties. So how does that work based on the structure? The anti-biofouling is really an anti-adhesive property primarily because the, the organisms that would otherwise attach, they start, uh, the first things that are attaching are molecules and then organisms. So an anti-adhesive property is typically anti-fouling in that context. I think this was the cicada wing that keeps bacteria from getting on there. For example, yes. And hanging out and eating things they're not supposed to eat. <laughs> <laughs> One other point you made that was really interesting was how engineers, people who are building with purpose and material scientists should work together on projects in order to take advantage of fitting material to function. If you look at natural materials, they are obviously growing. Molecules and then larger entities are being assembled and then reaching at the end a certain function. If you want another function, then you have to assemble the same building blocks in a different way. Mm -hmm. Now, if you would like to translate this into engineering, it means that if you want to assemble the building blocks, if you are a material scientist synthesizing the material with a certain function, you have to know what at the end the functionality should be. And this implies that we need a much better interaction between people at the end of the chain, such as designers, for example, product designers, but also designers that invent new types of artifacts or robots, soft robots, machines, and so on, directly with the people at the beginning of the chain in materials chemistry. Due to the specialization we had in education, we are getting further and further away, it seems, from this integration. And one thing to learn from nature, especially if you want to have these multifunctional material approaches, is that we have to bring this together again. 
Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Peter Fratzel is the director at the Max Planck Institute of Colloids and Interfaces and the head of the Department of Biomaterials. You can find a link to his review and the special section on composite materials, including a review on composites with carbon nanotubes and graphenes, and another review on the complex structures of biological composites at sciencebag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. To place an ad on the science podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's AAAS.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.